Good evening. Welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight, and our topic is the Nexus Part 2, The Enemy. We started last week with something about the Nexus being the point of connection between what is divine and what is human. We're thinking about uh, God's coming into the world as Jesus and getting ready for the Easter season and so on. And the thing that was puzzling me this week was that there are Old Testament prophecies that we'll be looking at that suggest that when the Messiah would come, he would be incredibly powerful. He would come like thunder and lightning. He would take vengeance on his enemies and, uh, and destroy them. And uh, then Jesus came into the world and he was a sweetheart. Uh, you know, you would think if you're going to have a, a battle scene, if you were writing the movie, it would come down to the denouement where, you know, Jesus is facing off against Herod or somebody, you know, and on, you know, this amazing battle of words, and then they start wrestling each other, and, you know, and instead Herod talks to him and he just doesn't say anything. So, where was all this thunder and, where's the thunder and lightning? In fact, I honestly believe the reason that one reason that he was crucified was that people were bitterly disappointed because he did nothing about their enemies. There was all this talk in the Old Testament. He's going to come here and deal with the enemies. He came into the world. He didn't deal with the enemies. He was meek. He was nice. You know? And uh, so I want to look at that tonight and, and just ponder that, what's going on, and what, who, or who or what is this enemy? Do, what, what did we misunderstand about that uh, story? So if you'd like to join me for that journey, let's uh, open with a prayer. Shall we, friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we're so grateful to be with you Thank you for coming to join us for Bible study. You are the Word made flesh. We pray for your presence among us as we open the pages of your Word and seek who you are and how you would have us live so that we may be closer to you. Amen. Pleasure to be with you. Sending love to those of you who are out online watching the broadcast and those of you who are on the phone, those of you getting the audio, and those of you who are delightfully present here in the room, for which I'm very grateful. Um, power versus meekness. What's, what's the deal? Uh, shall we start by looking at some... Uh, oh, no. How I want to start this time. Uh, some of you friends, if you were watching the episode last week, for the first time in seven... You realize the Bible study is almost seven years old. Uh, July 28th of 2010 is when we started. It's almost seven years old. In seven years, I've never forgotten the power cord for the laptop, uh, but I did last week. And uh, it was hidden behind a chair at home, and I forgot it. And, 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 um, and so it was very, very exciting uh, not having a power cord and <laughs> having the power sort of wind up. And so the, the person who was operating the camera said to me, we got 4%. You know, it was going down fast, so we quickly wrapped it up. So I want to say a couple more things about that topic from last time, if I may. I want to get out this graphic that I used last time. I told, for those of you who weren't present for that, I told a strange story about how there was a king on an island called Galamela, 
and you had the loveys and the smarties over there, but they had this whisper down the lane arrangement of communication and eggs would float from there and get to this central island that was like an amphitheater, very steep walls, and the only way in was through these little openings, and then there was this other craggy land over here called Neglo. And um, part of what I wanted to convey with that story is uh, the whisper down the lane. Like, I thought a lot about how to portray the fact that you can't get in. They didn't have technology, so nobody from Gallimella could have any direct communication or interaction with the people on the island. So there was a bunch of younger children and older children there. And uh, what that corresponds to spiritually, that I ran out of time thanks to the power cord situation to explain, is that um, the way the Lord set up the universe, there's actually pretty strict controls uh, that's what the walls mean, that the, the angels up in heaven uh, cannot just immediately to everybody who's alive in this world, which is what the island is, they can't just directly interact with us, you know, all the time, day and night, tell us what to do and it, all this kind of stuff. It doesn't work that way. It's more remote. I talked about birds that would fly over with a little message and stuff like that, but people may misunderstand the message and so on. And part of what I was trying to convey there is what Swedenborg says that uh, happened and why the Lord needed to be born into the world was that this whisper down the lane from God to the highest or celestial angels, who I called the lovies, to the spiritual angels, who I called the smarties, it had to come down... Uh, this message was passed down like this, but the appearance was that God was very remote. You know, the wise and loving king was on this mountain far away, and uh, everything went through this kind of chain. Uh, and when the chain got broken, when things got bad in this world, on the island, uh, there was no real way. It, it broke the communication. Um, Part of this barrier, you know, so you'd say, well, why would God set up a barrier? Why would he make it difficult? Why not just leave everything open? Well, one problem with open is that hell, which is represented by Neglib, wants to communicate with us, wants to steer our lives. And it, it does not mean us well. It wants to harm us, wants to lead us astray, tell us the wrong thing, turn us upside down, tell us, no, the Lord doesn't have your best interests at heart. No, the word is not this or you know, and, and t give us the wrong messages. And, um, and the only way to keep hell out was also to keep heaven out, like it was all or nothing, you know. Uh, and so there used to be spiritual influence of that kind in early times, but it all had to be shut down at a certain point because it got very, very dangerous. Um, so... That's why there was this distance here, and this was protection, so that, so that the, the world would have its own kind of culture. Now, I was very intrigued as I was thinking about this analogy, uh, that the, the way it worked out in my mind was that you had younger children in this little island, and you had older children, and the younger children were people in this world, and the older children were people in what Swedenborg calls the world of spirits, which is where we go right after we die, but before we go to heaven or hell. If you remember my story, if you heard it, uh, 
people at some point, the idea was that you get strong enough to go up and jump off. You're supposed to swim to the nice island over there, but a lot of people were sort of drifting in the other direction and going to Neglub instead, representing hell. Uh, it intrigued me a great deal to think about the connection. I've been thinking about that for a while, the way Swedenborg teaches the spiritual world. I always used to think the big transition is between this physical world and when we go to the spiritual world. But the more and more I've been thinking about it, I think, well, no, actually the big transition is going from the world of spirits to either heaven or hell. Swedenborg even occasionally describes this as the death. He says you have the death of the body, then you go to the world of spirits. Then you have the death of the spirit, he says. And this is depicted in my story by leaping off, you know, they leap off the, this steep edge and dive down into the water. You know, this is sort of the end of that phase of your life. And then you're leaping off and you're either going for goodness over here in, in heaven or you're more drawn to evil over here in hell. But after a time, people were opting to stay in the island. And this represents the fact that there were uh, people who decided not to go to, to heaven or hell. They just, they just stayed put in the middle, in the world of spirits, and built up into these, what Swedenborg calls imaginary heavens. And a big thing the Lord had to do in coming into the world was to deal with these imaginary heavens. And so that was part of the purpose of my story, that the wise and loving king puts his soul into this egg and it goes down into that world so that he can deal with what's going on with the older children and the younger children in this world. Don't know if I've explained that at all, whether that's as clear as mud now, I hope so. The walls are for human freedom and autonomy so that we don't get shoved around. The Lord cares tremendously about the freedom. He doesn't want heaven pushing us around. He doesn't want hell pushing us around. Heaven is a lot less pushy. They respect the freedom and so on. Hell wants to get very, very pushy. And uh, he wants to leave us in freedom. And ironically, it's also for our protection, even though that very protection mechanism led things to get very bad at a certain, you know, it allowed things to get very bad until the Lord came into the world. And so he wanted to break that whisper down the lane. He wanted to be on all levels. And the story I told last time was that he, he then, he becomes a child in this world, which is Jesus. And then he becomes the wind, which is the Holy Spirit. And then he's able to be everywhere and be absolutely present with people. Uh, in heaven, in hell, in the world, in the world of spirits, able to be present everywhere and connect people together safely so that he's able to restore communication between heaven and this world because you can do it through the Lord. And he's able to uh, protect us from the communication from hell. You know, he can open a spiritual channel without having hell pour in and take away our freedom and so on. So, don't know if that makes any sense. The name Galamella comes from the Greek root meaning milk, gal, the galaxy is the Milky Way, um, and, uh, and Mela is honey, milk and honey. So that's the land of milk and honey. Neglub is just an ugly word that sounds kind of like it's in goblin language from Lord of the Rings or something, so that's how I came up with a name for hell, in case you're curious about that. And um, it's a little bit, the only other analogy I want to say about that is that it's a little bit like, isn't it true, uh, those of you who have been parents of a fairly sizable family, like when you get sort of an age spread and you've got little, 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 little delicate children and you've got older children who are quite a bit older and physically strong and everything, 
don't you spend a certain amount of energy protecting the littlest ones from the bigger ones? You know, gentle, gentle, you know, and, and all that kind of thing, right? And that's kind of what the Lord was, was doing with us, trying, trying to protect us um, uh, from the spirits who wanted to dominate us and also uh, not protect us from the angels exactly, but just it's supposed to be our autonomy and freedom. We're supposed to be protected in that way. And once the Lord came back, then this can all become one world, almost as if you threw cell phones or, or something into this world that wasn't there before that allowed everybody to communicate. Only that's through the Holy Spirit, through, through the Lord. So that's crystal clear. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about uh, this business of power versus meekness. I want to read some passages that talk about the Lord in the prophecies in the Old Testament that are almost terrifying at this sense of how powerful the Lord's going to be against enemies. And there's going to be a battle. The Old Testament prophecies, there's going to be a battle. There's going to be an enemy. And the Lord's going to come into the world. He's going to be so powerful against the enemy. So let's read some of those, shall we? Uh, one of my favorites along these lines is 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel 2, 2. And uh, that is um, about a quarter of the way through your Bible kind of thing. It's to the left of the kings and to the right of the five books of Moses and all that. 2 Samuel 22. This is David. Uh, it's very much repeated in Psalm 18. Um, that I, I like this version for some reason. So let's just read at some length in here, if you could, dear reader. Starting at the beginning? Right at the beginning, Second Samuel 22. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies. Ah, so David has been delivered from his enemies. And, and this is what hand, he said. And from the hand of Saul. And from the hand of Saul. I'm sorry. Yes, that's right. And he said... The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge. Mm. My Savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Important phrase that I want you to remember there. So shall I be saved from my enemies. So he's going to call on the Lord, and that's how David will be saved from his enemies. Describe that a little bit, dear David. When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. Mm. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. Yes, in the old King James, hell, Sheol and hell are, are identified. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. And I love this kind of language. I see this. Swedenborg says that David uh, in the Old Testament almost always represents the Lord, and it's quite clear. You know, when the Lord is born in the New Testament, they say he's the son of David, and so on, the root, and, and, and all that. Uh, and so if you think about the incarnation in these terms, this is fun poetry here. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. He was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. 
He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. For some reason, that image of bowing the heavens and coming down, I just, I just love that. He bowed the heavens and come down. There's darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the, from the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. Mm. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. I want to hit pause for just a second and say some of this imagery is similar to things we've read not that long ago about God coming down on Mount Sinai to give the law. Uh, isn't it? It's, it's a similar sort of smoke and fire and thick clouds and, and all that. So here's, here's God coming down in this way. And this is an interesting phrase in verse 15. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. So very powerful imagery. You know, here are these enemies and pow, pow, and he's dealing with the enemies. Go on. Then the channels of the sea were seen. Mm. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Mm. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. And you see how the tone kind of shifts a little bit here where there's all this, he's scattering the enemies and driving them away and all this, and then it focuses in on David. Now the Lord is just paying attention to, to David here, and he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. He delighted in me. So there's an interesting juxtaposition of this sense of the Lord's delight in David, but this powerful driving away of, of the enemies and this kind of rescue. It's also curious that David sings this song on the day that the Lord had already delivered him from his enemies, but everything's in the future tense, right? I will call on the Lord, so I will be saved from my enemies and all this. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a future, it's a prophecy about the future. Okay, there's some other passages that go with that, but that's a powerful one. Um, now, okay, uh, 10 bucks to anybody who can find Nahum. Uh, it's a different way of approaching it. Uh, <laughs> Hosea. So if you get past Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. It's the seventh of the minor prophets. If you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. But Nahum is worth looking at here. It's right after Micah and right before Habakkuk. And you'll hear similar language in this as what David just expressed. Let's read the first, I don't know, eight verses of the first chapter of the book of Nahum. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. Mm. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Enemies, adversaries. He's angry. He's going to deal with them. That's right. Here we go. 
The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Mm. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Wow. Again, you get that image that's sort of surrounded by clouds and the dust of his feet and the whirlwind. Go on. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Mm. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. Mm. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. It's curious that in the Old King James, the earth is burned at his presence. The mountains quake, the hills melt. But yours said heaves or something like that, right? Heaves at his presence. Either way, huge upheaval. Go on. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. And we've talked before about this passage because it has this wonderful sort of reversal. of He's slow to anger, but he's really angry. And then this verse is particularly interesting. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. Mm-hmm. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But, but with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. Mm. Uh, let's read verse 9. That's a good one. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. Now, that's those are fighting words, aren't they? You know, like the it, uh, affliction is not, is not going to have a second chance. You know, when he deals with it, it's going to be powerful, and um, it's not going to have a second chance. Turn to the New Testament. Go through Matthew, Mark, and let's go to Luke chapter 1. Because when there are prophecies, Luke is all full of prophecies about the Lord's coming, you know, right on the eve of the Christmas story there. Look at one toward the end of that long, long chapter. And uh, look at, let's start at verse 68. This is uh, Zacharias about the birth of John and about Jesus who's coming. And what, what is his prophecy? Now, this is not hundreds of years, thousands of years earlier. This is in real time kind of thing. You know, it was about to happen. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies. That's right. And from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Okay, so as I read that, twice in there we're told about we'll be saved from our enemies and the hand of all those who hate us. In verse 74, you know, this is the promise to Abraham. This is the whole fulfillment of the whole Old Testament is that uh, he would grant us that we would be delivered out of the hand of our enemies so that we could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. That's the story. That's what everybody was expecting. Messiah is going to come. He's going to deal with the enemies. So what enemies did they have? 
Well, the Romans were their enemies. They were conquered by, you know, this invading power that had political domination over them and everything uh, and was extracting all these taxes and tribute from them and, and everything. So they perfectly had every reason to think that the Lord was going to come into the world like lightning and thunder and deal with the enemies. Isn't that what was predicted? That's what he's going to do. Uh, okay. So now let's go back to Isaiah in the middle of your Bible because there's another side to this thing. And we start to see it in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, a lot of people, a lot of Christians read this as being all about the Lord's coming into the world. It says very specific things about His coming. I just want to read um, uh, verse 7 particularly there. And th so this is a forecast of, of what's going to happen. And, and well, let's read verse 2. It's just irresistible there. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Oh, well, I didn't hear any kind of tender plant language back there. I heard about, you know, the whirlwind and the storm. He was like one of the X-Men. or You know, he's going to come into the world and, and trash the place or something. What, where's this tender plant? This tender plant. And it says he was despised and rejected by people. We hid our faces from him. He's borne our grief and so on. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't open his mouth. Where's this powerful pow, pow, lightning bolt, pow? Where's the pow? He's not even going to open his mouth? What are you talking about? Go on. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So how is he going to do all this great mighty, wow, tear down the strongholds of hell and everything? He's not even opening his mouth. You know? Well, that's kind of bizarre. Okay, let's look in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. I want to look at, uh, let's say, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at just verses 43 and 44. What does the Lord say here about how we should treat our enemies? You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Yes, go on. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Yes. Well, that's... I'm not hearing so much thunder and lightning and cloud and destruction and the vengeance and, you know... What is this sort of, well, love, love them, says Jesus. Well, what happened there? Uh, let's look at Matthew 11. What does Jesus say in 28 and 29 and 30 there? Very famous passage. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle and lowly in heart. The old King James, meek and lowly in heart. So we're not paying you to be meek and lowly. You know, we want thunder and lightning. Deal with the enemies. What are you doing? 
We didn't ask you to come here and be gentle. You're supposed to take care of this thing. It's an interesting sort of juxtaposition, isn't it? You'll find rest for your souls. Go on. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hmm. Strange. Okay. And uh, turn, if you will. Uh, let's see. If you can find the Hebrews, sort of halfway back to the book of Revelation there, and then turn to the right, you'll go through James and get to Peter. Let's look at 1 Peter 2. Verses 21 and 22. This is Peter looking back after the crucifixion on what had happened there. And what does he say in verse 21? For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. What? When he suffered, he did not threaten, what? but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Yeah, I mean, I th where's the vengeance, the thunder and the lightning? Well, you know, there's sort of a cognitive uh, dissonance in here, isn't there? He's saying what, what he didn't, you know, no matter what they said to him, he wouldn't do anything, almost as a matter of principle. So what, how are you dealing with the enemy? You know, what's, what's, what's going on here? Okay, and... I'm very interested, and when you know the story well, I'm sure, friends, that when he's actually in this world, he finally meets Herod. Herod is saying all these things, wants him to you know, do a miracle or do something, and Jesus won't say anything. You know, there's several times, and though he's falsely accused, he doesn't even say anything. He's right up against the enemy. You know, he's talking to Pontius Pilate, the Roman, the most powerful Roman in the area, the governor, and they just have an interesting chat, and, um, you know, he doesn't kill him. Uh, doesn't get rid of them, doesn't drive the Romans from the land. He just leaves it all right where it is. Just sits there and says nothing to Herod, and then he dies, and Herod still keeps going, and Pontius Pilate keeps going, the Roman thing keeps going. So where, what happened to the enemy? You know, what was all that thunder and lightning? When, when did that happen? So it's curious to me, you have Old Testament prophecies that say there's going to be thunder and lightning, he's going to deal with the enemies and take vengeance, then you see, but there's some passages that say he'll be meek and mild and won't, you know, as a lamb to the slaughter type of thing. And then in the New Testament, you see him be meek and mild, and he doesn't deal with uh, any kind of earthly enemies. And then you get passages like this. Uh, I don't know if you're still in First Peter. Is that where you are, dear yes, reader? Yes, I am. Uh, let's turn to the left and go through the Hebrews and through some things that start with T and go back to... 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, back there. It's to the left of Timothy. And uh, now look at verses 7 to 9. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 9. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Okay, now this is in the Old King James's future tense, shall be revealed, and this is about the Lord's second coming. Now we're in the New Testament, Jesus has been resurrected, and now there's prophecies for the second coming. And what does it say? In flaming fire, taking vengeance <laughs> on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Thank you. So, well, should we believe Him? I mean, it said that the last time too, and it, it was completely the opposite. Are we supposed to believe this? Oh, the, now the second time he's going to flaming fire and vengeance and everything? Probably not. It, it didn't do it that way the first time. So, uh, and look at, uh, turn to the left and go back to 1 Corinthians, if you can find that before you hit the Romans and Acts and things like that. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at 24 to 26. An interesting little passage. Again, looking forward to the second coming. Then comes the end. Am I in the right place? Yep. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Mm. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, wait a minute. Death, okay. Is death Roman? I forget. Uh, death is not a person, right? You know, the la okay, so the last enemy is death, but this is in the future, and he's got to reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy... So it puts a little crack in the idea of whether the enemies are physical people in this world. The last enemy that should be destroyed is death. So it's interesting pattern to me that in the Old Testament you say he's going to come with all this fire and then he actually comes and he's awfully nice and then they say, but he's going to come again and he's going to be all sorts of fire, you know. And um, so how should we take all this? Okay. Um, I think people have repeatedly made the mistake of thinking that there are worldly enemies. The Old Testament sounds like he's going to come and deal with worldly enemies. He comes into the world. He does not deal with the enemies. No, he doesn't kill anybody. No, you know, when the, his disciple cuts off the ear of the high priest, he reattaches it. You know, that's about as close to warfare as he gets in terms of any kind of actual... Uh, he, he's not about bloodshed. He's not killing people. He's not destroying the enemies. And, uh, and in fact, there is a powerful message. See, what does it say? Let's, let's look in Matthew. So let's go back to Matthew to the left there. Go to that first gospel. Matthew chapter 1. I found this very, very interesting. 121, famous statement about Mary and the Christmas story. And in 121, what do we read? And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, I've been thinking a lot uh, about this. When you have what Scripture might call a carnal mindset, when you think of things in terms of flesh and blood, you think the enemies must be people. They must be those bad Romans. They must be, the, you know, these other bad enemy people. 
oh, the enemies must be the Pharisees. They must be the high priests and the scribes. Or you've got to have an enemy. He's fighting somebody. So it must be people, and he's dealing with those enemies. But the Lord doesn't see it that way. This, my next analogy doesn't really work, but maybe you can see what I'm driving at. I was very intrigued years ago to learn from the, um, there was a Canadian researcher named Farley Mowat who went up and he was studying the animals of the far Canadian north and then got very interested in the Inuit people, it used to be called Eskimos, you know, uh, the Inuit people, and he learned a lot about their culture and lived with them and became more of an anthropologist. Uh, and um, one of the things he said, there, you know, I don't know how you think of it, but a lot of people in this world would associate, understandably, snow with cold. Like, snow is, you know, it's cold, it snows, there, there's, that's, the same, that's the same thing. To the Inuit, the snow is their salvation from the cold. The snow is something that God sends them to help them with the cold. It's their friend. It's not their enemy. If you build an ice, you know, if you build an igloo, it'll stay like 35 degrees in there. and It can be 40 below outside. The snow <clears throat> protects you from the cold. That's the way they see it. Now, it's interesting, you know. Uh, so they divide something that a lot of us would think of as being the same. Isn't that the same thing? How can you divide snow from cold? But they do. They think the snow is a remedy for the real problem. The real problem is not the snow. The problem is the cold, and the snow is a remedy to the cold. The Lord looks at the human race. As I say, I don't think the analogy entirely carries across, but the Lord looks at the human race, and there's not a single person in the human race who He sees as the enemy. Not a single person ever is the enemy. People are not the enemy. He came, what did it say? To save His people from their sins. Sin is the enemy. Sin is the problem. And he makes a distinction. We have a carnal mindset. We, seem, we, we think, well, that's an evil person. You know, so that's the enemy, that evil person over there. He doesn't see it that way. He sees sin over here, and he sees people over there. And he wants to save the people. And he knows we're wrapped up in this thing, but he wants to save people from their sin. And there's not a single person who is his enemy. That's why he never, he never hurt anybody. He never, you know, he, was kind, he would have a meeting with anybody. He would talk with anybody. You know, uh, there were no mortal enemies. You know, there wasn't a single person that he was against. So all that talk about the enemy, that's all about dealing with evil. He came into this world to deal with evil, deal with the sin, to save people from their sins. Uh, Swedenborg says that uh, the Lord sees the devils in hell, even the, the lowest devils and Satans in hell, separately from hell. He wants to rescue them from hell. From our standpoint, we say, well, they constitute hell. That, that's, who, that's who that is. But he is constantly trying to rescue them from hell. This is his perpetual effort, as much as they will allow him to. And I think I can prove it scripturally uh, that it's not a select group that he's trying to save from another enemy group. Look over at Luke. Let's go to Luke. Turn right Mark to Luke. Let's look at the Christmas story in Luke. You know this phrase very well, good friends. 2 verse 10. 
angel appears to the shepherds. And what does he say about this incarnation? Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For all people. All people. Not the Israelites, as opposed to the Romans. Not the Romans as opposed to the Syrians or whoever else, you know. All people. There's not a single... The problem is sin. The enemy is sin. All the people are the victims of it, and he wants to rescue those victims from the sin. And that's why he never takes action against people. That's why he doesn't overthrow their governments or attack them or mount any kind of a rebellion or whatever. And uh, look at... Um, uh, oh, come on. Um, oh, let's, let's flash back to... Oh, let's go back to Matthew 18. So turn to the left, go through Mark to Matthew 18, verse 14. There's a statement about children. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Yeah, not one. He wasn't here about having people perish. That's not what he was doing here. Uh, how about, oh, let's go back. Okay, here you go. I'll give you another 10 bucks if you can find Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations is at the end of Jeremiah before Ezekiel. So keep turning to the left. It's just a little thing, so it's hard to find. I want to go to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 31 and following there. What do we read there? For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. Yes. He never wants to grieve anyone. Anyone. I read something in Swedenborg's works the other day that says he totally forgave everybody for the, you know, for the crucifixion. Like anybody, any, anybody who attacks him, anybody who hates him, he, he, he's total forgiveness. He's total forgiveness. Um, and one more. Let's turn to the right to Ezekiel chapter 18. And we'll just look at those last two verses in there. Yeah, 31 and 32. Oh, sorry. 18, 31, 32. Cast away from you <clears throat> all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. No pleasure. He didn't come here to have a fun little revenge stomp thing and wipe people out. Or something. You know, no pleasure in the death of one who dies. Turn and live. He wants to separate us from that evil that we're attached to. We think it is us. He sees it as separate. He has a different point of view. It's, it's different than that carnal kind of mindset. Uh, a couple more passages about... Uh, oh, let's look at... Uh, so. Turn to the right again. We're jumping all over the place. But if you start at the book of Revelation, let's say, and go left from the very end of your Bible there and go through Jude and John, you'll get back to Peter again. I want to look at 2 Peter 3, verse 9. 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yeah, there's not a single person he's interested in perishing. So all this talk about vengeance on the enemies and so forth, you notice it, it, I mean, there's sometimes you hear words like destroy or something like that. Most of it, it just says scatter and things like, you know, it's not kill them, you know, wipe them all out or something. Uh, he just wants to protect uh, everybody who will possibly accept his protection. Um, it is our, let's go to the left and go to uh, Romans, which is right after the book of Acts there. I want to go to Romans chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, because this speaks to a certain kind of mindset. Look at this, it's really amazing. Um, let's pick up at verse 5, I guess. What? Verse 4, I guess. I don't know. Verse 3, where a sentence starts. Sure. Sure, I'll take a beginning of a sentence. What the heck? This is chapter 8 in Romans. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Yeah, it sort of speaks to my island metaphor a little bit that, that he had to come into the world and be in the flesh in order to deal with the sin that was afflicting the flesh at that time. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be. Yes, that's right. So you see that? It used the word enmity. That means the carnal mind is an enemy to God. It's a part of ourselves. It's just one part. That carnal mind has a negative relationship to God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. So another way of putting it, the Lord wanted to rescue us from our sins. He wanted to rescue us from our carnal minds. Take us out of that carnal mind. Carnal meaning fleshly. You know, and fleshly has two meanings. You know, one is sort of oriented to the lusts of the flesh and that type of thing. It's also, as Swedenborg explains it, uh, viewing things like only believing things that you can touch and see, you know, it's a materialistic view. And uh, he describes it as death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God and cannot be. Turn to the right, if you will, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, we'll have to jump into mid-sentence again with Paul here. It's always fun. 2 verse 13, let's start there. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Mm. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, 
nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. I think this is such an important point, and I think of this a lot. In other words, he also separates the levels in ourselves. He doesn't see our natural self or our carnal mind as being us, the real us. He knows that that natural man, in other words, our earthly self, is not receptive to the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to that part of ourselves. We, you know, we all have a spiritual, like in our, in our psyche, we have a basement that doesn't, doesn't know from God. You know, we, we do, that, that part of us is not godly. It's, if, if we live according to the flesh, then we pay attention to the things of the flesh, as we just read. But if we're living according to the Spirit, then we're paying attention to the things of the Spirit. And that's something the Lord came to do for us by coming in the flesh and trying to lift us up. A key thing... Um, well, let me say this first. I think the crowds, as I said before, like I think about the motivation. When I think about that week between Palm Sunday, not even a week, between Palm Sunday and the crucifixion, what happened in five days? He was everybody's hero. They loved him. Whole town was, whoa, you know, in the palm branches. There was, it was, he came, rode in as a hero, riding in as a king. It was a very clear sign of, you know, that, that was what you did. You were anointed. They knew it all from the Old Testament. Uh, riding in as a king on Sunday, wildly celebrated. By Friday, they killed him. What happened? When did things go south there during that week? It seems that he went into the temple. He drove out the money changers. They're excited about that. And then he didn't do anything. He would just go pray. He would come in to teach in the temple. Then he'd go out, say some more prayer, come in, do some more teaching. It's like, what? Romans, hello. Aren't you supposed to fight for us? Aren't you supposed to do something? You know, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus said we were hoping it was going to be he who would redeem Israel. They had concluded he had failed to redeem them because he did nothing about the oppressive rule they were under. Uh, I think that everybody, even the disciples included, misunderstood who the enemy was and what he was doing. And so they were bitterly disappointed. They were crushed. They couldn't believe it. My own personal view is that Judas Iscariot was trying to push the Lord. Maybe he thought, you know, the Lord is feeling a little reticent or nervous about the confrontation. I think Judas wanted to push him by betraying him. Like, Let's get it going. You know, I don't think he thought that Jesus was going to get killed by this because he went and hanged himself right afterwards. You know, like that wasn't the outcome he was looking for, I think. I think he was trying to push the issue by having him betrayed. And then instead, Jesus gets captured and killed. I was like, what? You know, I don't think anybody was ready. They were all in total shock after that because they'd all been thinking about it from a kind of carnal mindset about human enemies, these are bad people, and so on. Fortunately, in our world, good friends, we have all as a human race entirely gotten over this view. So we no longer think that Muslims are the enemies of Christians. We no longer think that this type of Christian is worse than that type of Christian. We no longer think that there are bad people. There are no divisions among us. It's a wonderful heaven on earth now. 
which is great. We've gotten over this because we understood, oh, the Lord is talking about something spiritual. He's, not, he's talking about our relationship to sin. He's not talking about people. I remember after 9-11, there was the view that this was sort of a punishment for the evil that goes on in Manhattan or something. You know, it's like people think, that well, well, those people, God wants to get those people. Or God hates these type of people. You know, people hold up placards and stuff like that. It's amazing. Uh, but that is a carnal understanding of this text, I would humbly submit. Um, it's not understanding that the Lord is trying to separate us the enemy is sin. I can't say it enough. The enemy is that evil that was plaguing the human race. The Lord wants to save everyone from that across the board. And he sees every single one of us. Not a single one of us is his enemy. We're the people. It said uh, in, in Luke there, what do they say to the shepherds? For all people. This is good news. For all people. And he commands all men everywhere to repent. And so, you know, th this was a, a universal message. No human enemies. The enemy is something different. Um, another point. Uh, it has amazed me before, and maybe you've heard me talk about this a little bit, but as I thought about it a whole lot, I thought a lot, a lot, a lot a few years back about why... Why, did the, why couldn't the Lord deal with hell from the highest, above the highest heaven? Why did why he have to be born in this pitiful little piece of flesh to, to deal with hell? Why did he have to be here? And it finally dawned on me after a lot of thinking about it that it was in order to keep hell safe. If he had come down in all his glory from the mountain up here, you know, and come down into the world, just come here dominant, it would have been like the sun coming to our world. It just would have cooked everything, would have destroyed everybody. His presence, he, you know, even ordinary people. You see what happened when he came down on Mount Sinai. Everybody was terrified and they couldn't, couldn't stand it. And they're just ordinary, you know, mom and pop, you know, okay people or whatever. But they can't, they can't abide it. Uh, what would it have been like for evil people in hell if God himself and all his infiniteness and power had come down? Uh, they would have been just destroyed beyond recognition. Uh, the loving thing that he did was to kind of ramp down to transform his voltage into something so low that he could just do, you know, he could just set up a little boundary and, and say, okay, you guys back over here, and okay, let's sort out the good and the evil that have been amassing in the world of spirits. Got this all straightened out. Everybody okay? We're good? Okay, that's how he deals with the enemy. He's nothing but love. It's taken me a long time to see it, but it really is true. He's nothing but love and mercy. He's so gentle. His presence is perceived by the evil as thunder and lightning and clouds and fire and destruction and vengeance, you know, that's from our, that's the carnal mindset perception of what the Lord, because we can't understand that divine love. We, we don't understand what he's doing. Uh, but all he's doing, it said in one of those passages we just read, his presence. I don't know if you remember that, but it said something about his presence had this, uh, this, de oh, I think it was when, um, I think it was in, in uh, that one in First Peter that was talking about 
with fire and vengeance and so on. But then if you read it carefully, it just says that the, his presence was having this effect. It wasn't any, you know, he wasn't doing anything. It was just him being close at hand was ha having all this apparently dramatic effect. So I think the second coming is, you know, you had that first picture, it's going to be crazy. Then the Lord came into the world and he was very sweet. And then you had this picture of the second coming, it's going to be crazy. Uh, the Lord's going to be very sweet again. It, he's going to straighten things out. Things have gotten a mess in this little island again. Uh, or did, you know, uh, Swedenborg says back in 1757, there's got to be a mess again. And the Lord uh, came back in a new understanding of the word in order to be able to take care of that and get that straightened out again permanently. Um, so I think that's all very straightforward. Uh, you know, I think that gives us a ready understanding of what the Lord was doing at Easter. Um, he came into this world to take on sin and conquer it. And the amazing thing, he understood that is not, it might be, it might appear to be in people, they might appear to embody it, but that's not what it is. And the amazing thing is he did almost the whole thing internally in his own mind and heart. Like where he conquered the hell was inside himself. Stuff would, would rise up, you know, from hell and everything. He would deal with that internally. He was doing all that vanquishing of enemies and everything, but it was internal with the, with the sin, and he was organizing hell, actually making it a happier place, a more organized place, giving people more useful things to do, and uh, organized the world of spirits, organized the heavens, uh, gave a new revelation, did all these wonderful, beautiful things for the human race. Uh, so I would urge you, friends, if you hear people talking about there's going to be lightning bolts and uh, God's going to come, he's so angry at everybody, just think carnal mindset. You know, yeah, we read about the scripture talks about that. Yeah, there will be people who have that carnal mindset who think that he's here to take revenge on anybody, but that's a misunderstanding of who his enemy is. His enemy is not one single person ever. He loves the whole human race. He wishes us all well from the bottom of his heart eternally. No one, is his, no one does he hold as an enemy. And um, the enemy is just that evil that traps people and brings them down, reduces their happiness in life, makes things miserable for other people. That's the enemy that he came to deal with. That's what the Lord laid on my heart. Shall we close with a prayer? I want to personally thank the battery for operating the whole time tonight. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. It's what the Lord wants us to do.